You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me Mr. Larry Cohn, who is a DUI criminal defense attorney here in Atlanta. He's got over 20 years of experience, and I think, I don't know about you, um, but I start... um, Start not adding years after 20 years of experience, but that's just me. Um, and he's here to help us with, I think, a really important uh, series of questions that we've all been thinking about and talking about. I also have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having us, Susan. So this is um, a wonderful opportunity, I think, for those of us in the room, but certainly our listeners, to get some really good basic information. I think when you need a lawyer, it's sort of like when you need addiction treatment. Nobody thinks about it. Nobody plans for it. It's usually in a crisis in in a criminal case. It's also not something that you necessarily feel like calling up your friends because there's some shame. There's a lot of fear associated with it. So sometimes people make mistakes and people don't know even when they might need an attorney. So we're going to look at some of these um, ideas today, how a lawyer can actually be a counselor, can give you good help and advice and direct you, even if there isn't a a case necessarily, but you have some questions and concerns, it's really important to find the right place to go. So just to put you on the spot, what's one of the common things that you see happen uh, when people have done something that they have now an unfortunate interface with the law? Well, first, thanks for having me, Susan. Most people generally are good people who simply made bad decisions. And generally, they come to our office, and we've been doing this for well over 20 years. My partners and I have written books. We lecture on DUI. We're known throughout the state on criminal offenses. I practice with a guy, uh, with a gentleman by the name of William Bubba Head, and my other law partner is Corey Yeager. Um, But usually people come to us, or generally come to us, after they've been arrested. And most people have, um, as I said before, there are some people who simply continue to make bad decisions, but there are most people have simply gotten themselves into a situation that they didn't anticipate. And generally, the, the time that we have with Susan is that most of the cases that we see, or I'd probably say a great percentage of the criminal cases that exist out there, involve some form of alcohol or drugs, that people made a bad decision as a result of they consumed too much to drink, or they were um, took prescription medication that they shouldn't have taken, or that they um, got caught as a result of simply, you know, being under the influence of something. So generally when people come to us, and, and Susan brought up a good point, most people don't want to go ahead and ask the people at work, who should I, who should I call? You right. know, I, last night I had a little bit too much to drink. I punched my wife in the nose. It was a really unfortunate situation. I didn't mean for it to get that bad, but things got out of hand. Where do I go? And a lot of people oftentimes will go to the Internet, and, and granted, that's not a bad spot to find people, but what you want to do is take a look for, for certain people's credentials, their experience, um, and find out if they really know what they're talking about. And the first thing when people come to our office, what we do is we kind of ask them a lot of personal information about what they do, who they are, and how they find themselves into this predicament. Um, going back to, I guess, the initial question that Susan asked was that 
most people don't start the evening off intending that they're going to end up in jail. Right. And generally what happens is, is that a lot of people don't have the idea they want to call a lawyer because their their loved one or somebody's in jail. But most lawyers, at least under the Georgia bar rules, a lawyer cannot post a bond for somebody and then represent them. What happens is, is that a lawyer can represent somebody to get a bond established if there's not a bond that's set, and a bond is the mechanism that somebody would use to get out of jail. It simply means that if you have been arrested, they need to make sure that you're going to show up in court. So what will happen is, is if you or a loved one's been arrested, the court will set some sort of financial number. It could set um, certain reporting requirements. It could order a, a suspect or a person who's been charged to take drug testing, alcohol testing, maybe take a class or two. Even it, before. Even before. Okay. And some jurisdictions will require a person to go ahead and put an interlock ignition device on their vehicle even before they've been to court. So what happens is, is that a, a person's been arrested. They can generally make a phone call to a loved one and say, you know, I'm, I'm locked up here in Cobb County, Gwinnett County, Fulton County. And at that point, the wheel starts spinning and the family says, what do we do now? Correct. What do we do? We've got a loved one who's in jail. And typically what will happen is if it's a misdemeanor, which means it's a crime that is punishable by 12 months in jail and up to $1,000, a bond will be set by a schedule. If it is a felony case, which is a, generally a more serious case, um, then a bond would generally be set by a superior court or a magistrate court judge. So a person may have to sit a little, a little bit longer for a felony case, but um, a lawyer... Sit in jail. Sit in jail. Okay. But a lawyer cannot bond somebody out. A lawyer can simply get the number set. The family has to post the bond, but bar rules prohibit us from doing that. So people usually come to us and... You know, it could be a myriad of different types of offenses. It could be anywhere from a DUI to um, some really horrific cases involving child, molest ch child molestation, rapes, aggravated assaults. Um, but generally, all of these cases, there is some sort of silver lining. Okay, and what I mean by that is that when you've been arrested and you're sitting in the back of a police car, the first thought that goes through your head is, my goodness, my entire life is ruined. My family's going to find out. My job's going to find out. I'm going to lose everything I have. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my mortgage? I'm going to be locked up forever. And that's a natural feeling. But most cases don't work that way, okay? Simply because you've been arrested doesn't mean that you're going to end up having a conviction on your record. And the goal that we have is, in many cases, you know, Let's face it, in the criminal justice system, the majority of people who go through this did something. They're generally not sitting in the back of a police car because they were – and there are some plenty of people who get arrested improperly. And oftentimes the police are going to make up or exaggerate what went on. But generally something happened. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, in certain cases you could be in the wrong spot at the wrong time and or simply mistaken just – mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. look like somebody that might have done something. And that does happen. And sure. it's clear there's cases that you can read about on television that through the proof of DNA that this person was wrongly arrested. Absolutely. But if we take a look at the vast majority of cases that we're dealing with, it's not some great whodunit affair, you know. We caught the person with the marijuana in their pocket. You had the cocaine in your, you know, in your briefcase, in your vehicle. Uh, we had a search warrant for your house, and we found all these items that were, you know, against the law. So what happens in this circumstance is that when people come to us, the goal that we have is to try and make sure that their life ends up in as close to a situation or as close to it was before they got themselves into this mess and dealing with the subject of what we're dealing with here today in terms of addiction to generally try and figure out how did you find yourself in this spot to begin with and how do you basically go ahead and put yourself on a better path moving forward. And that's really our goal.
And I think it's really important that um, our listeners understand, and I want you all to get paper and pencil because I'm going to give you some important contact information um, so that if you are more interested in Mr. Cohn and his um, associates learning more about their practice. But I think it's important to understand that, yes, I might have a friend who is a really good tax attorney, or I might have a, f- uh, a relative who... Um, does wonderful um, real estate closings, but that may not be my first best go-to. Now, I can certainly call them and ask if they know someone, but it really is important that you get an attorney who understands uh, the criminal system that understands um, all of these processes and I'm sure sitting around this table we could tell some horror stories of people that um, used a, a very good attorney doing the best they could and yet a disaster happened because there were other things that were influencing the case. I can think, for example, someone who has a license to practice in the healthcare field and didn't use an attorney who understood the implications of a certain pleading on their licensure and their ability to continue to practice. So having someone who is an expert, having someone who knows the process and who can help direct you and guide you in the right way is really important. Right. If, if I could interject, one of the things when people come to us, oftentimes we'll talk to them about the medication that they take and dealing with the addiction and the mental health issues that this um, that this webcast deals with, you, you find out very often that people got their prescriptions from a general practitioner, that they, they went into a physical, and this happened to me, where I went into the physical and the doctor said to me, well, do you have a hard time sleeping? Are you feeling a lot of stress? I said, well, who doesn't have those issues? I said, I'm not, I, I don't need any medication. But the issue is, is there's a lot of people who might get prescribed a medication from a general practitioner. <clears throat> Not that they have any incentive to prescribe medication, but they might be trying to do the best that they can and say, you know what, this person probably sounds a little bit stressed out. We ought to give them a little bit of a, a, a pill. Maybe some medication might alleviate some of the symptoms and the problems that they're having, and they get a prescription for it. Well, the problem is is that prescription might oftentimes need to be tweaked, and that's where a person like Dr. Blank and, and, and David Donaldson can come in um, and help out with something like that, where the same thing happens in our field quite often where people will come to me, and the majority of our cases, or a lot of cases, come to us from other lawyers. Other lawyers send them send their clients mm-hmm. to us because they know that we're going to do a good job for them. And, and very often they say, look, you know a lot more about the criminal justice system than we do. You've got relationships with prosecutors and judges throughout the state. You've been doing this for a long time. And your firm is well known for trying and fighting cases. And what happens in that circumstance is that if you do those things, um, very often you're going to have a better chance of getting a good result than just a general practitioner or someone who doesn't focus in the area in which um, you're charged with. So going back to what Dr. Blank was was mentioning, we really got our start, or one of the things that we're known for is my law partner, William Bubba Head, is considered the, the foremost authority on, on DUI law. And when I got out of law school, or actually when I started law school, I needed a job. And I clerked for Bubba, William Bubba Head, for three years in law school and became partners with him upon graduation. And 
from learning how to do, you know, we had put on seminars throughout the state on how to do field sobriety. We teach other lawyers at, at predominantly all the local conferences throughout the state. It's generally our firm that, that runs the conference, that chairs the conference, that, that speaks at these programs on how to handle different types of cases. And when other lawyers throughout the state have questions, quite often they're going to call our office and ask us, what should I do with this case? How, how can you help us? Or how can what advice can you give us? And these areas, in other words, not just DUI, it has led to, for me, maybe a number of years ago, the majority of my practice was DUI. I'd say right now it's probably 60% DUI, 40% of almost 50% non-DUI from significant felony cases um, in all areas of, uh, of the law. And the DUI field, a lot of people think, well, it's just a DUI. Well, it's quite much more complicated than that. It involves a search and seizure issue because somebody got involved being pulled over in a car. They got out of the vehicle. They did some sort of field sobriety tests. They might have taken a chemical test, which the cases involve science. There's tons of evidentiary issues. It's a really much more complicated the law. And if you ask prosecutors and district attorneys and judges, they will tell you that if you can try a DUI case, you can try any type of case imaginable. Because it's really interesting. A year ago, or about two years ago, I went to a program on a pretty significant topic, child molestation cases. And I said to one of the lawyers there, I said, you know, a DUI case is, is, is so difficult to defend when there's a videotape of your client on video who looks intoxicated. Whereas in most other crimes, like a child molestation case or any other type of criminal case, it's a person who's describing a set of circumstances that took place to them uh, or some sort of fact pattern that took place, and there's no video of what happened. It's very difficult to go through a case and try and explain to people, well, I know you're looking at X, Y, and Z, but it's not quite but what you expect. it's not what you expect. And it's not what you think. So We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about your lawyer as a counselor. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, this is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour on America's Web Radio. If you'd like to hear an eclectic mix of great programs from relationships with Dr. Ann Schiebert to homegrown veggies and from classic cars to the Constitution, we've got programs for discerning listeners at www.americaswebradio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Susan Blank and my special guest, uh, Mr. Larry Cohn from the law firm of Cohn and Yeager. Uh, that's a law firm here in Atlanta, actually in Sandy Springs. And their website, if you've got your pen and paper ready, is www.georgiacriminaldefense.com. That's Georgia, all spelled out, not G-A, but GeorgiaCriminalDefense.com. Their office number is 404-567-5515. And um, we're very delighted to have Mr. Cohn here with us today. He's a graduate, uh, undergraduate of Emory and uh, went to Georgia State uh, Law School, has practiced here, and their firm is really the go-to firm here in Atlanta for these kinds of not just DUI but criminal defense um, situations that people may find themselves in. Right before the break, you were talking about the difficulty in defending a case or trying to help a jury or a judge understand why someone might appear intoxicated on the uh, um, camera, the police camera, the dash cam, why there might be some complications. And uh, you had some interesting responses. I wish we had the the video going at that point so that you could have uh, responded. But what are some of the ways in which you might want to question a patient, or I call them patients, you call them clients, why you might want to question them about um, other things in their life that may be impacting why they look like that. Sure. We typically break a DUI case down into four parts. The first part is the driving conduct. In other words, what allowed the police? Why was the, why was the car stopped? Generally, it could be some sort of traffic offense from running a stop sign to speeding to a car accident. Then what happens is, is typically when the officer gets to the scene, he will notice certain manifestations of impairment, whether it's bloodshot eyes, slurred speech, odor of alcohol, uh, unsteadiness on somebody's feet. And these are all things that you can ask somebody. Simple question. At 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, your eyes might be red because you're tired. Or there's a number of different causes for things of that nature. Um, sometimes people are unsteady. If you've been involved in an auto accident, it can be if you got hit in the face with an airbag. There's a number of different manifestations that can cause someone to look like they're impaired. However, at that point, the officer has generally not made the decision that they're going to arrest the person for a DUI, and they'll get them out of the car to do what we would call voluntary field sobriety tests. All field sobriety tests are voluntary, and the reason that they're voluntary is in in every state. You are not forced to do them. There is no uh, compulsion or or no police officer can say you must do them. Um, You can choose not to do them. It doesn't mean that the officer won't arrest you, but to stand on one leg and walk a line on the side of the road, let's just face it, whether you've had any alcohol or any sort of intoxicant of a drug, most people can't do that, period. So On a good day. On a good day. <laughs> and, and basically in 1977, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration put together these tests that were funded by um, the government to try and come up with the best three tests to determine 
what somebody's alcohol level would be. And they came up with an eye test where they're checking for something called nystagmus, which is an involuntary jerking of the eye. They came up with a walk-a-line test, which is basically walk nine steps heel to toe, turn around and walk back. And then they have you stand on one leg for approximately 30 seconds. Now, the interesting thing about it is when people come in and speak to us, they always say, oh, I did great on those tests. I say, I'm sure you did, but you don't even know the criteria of the grades of what the officers are looking for. For example, on a one-leg stand test, okay, there's four things that a person is supposed to, that the officer's looking for. Do you hop? Do you sway? Do you put your foot down? Do you raise your arms? Well, when you're standing there, they don't tell you that these are the four things that we're looking right. for. That, that, so in other words, people say, well, I did great. I say, okay. But more important than, than the field sobriety tests and, and the state-administered chemical test is that what we need to do is that there has to be an overall assessment of what's going on in your life. Are you on any kind of medication? Do you have any other physical ailments or any other types of things that could be explaining why you might have you know, certain types of uh, problems understanding what's going on? Like, for example, I, you know, the other day I had a client who came into my office who was, of, who was an Indian. He was a, not an American Indian, but he was here on a visa from India. So his English seemed pretty good, but I said to him, I said, if you fell down a flight of stairs and you banged your elbow on the ground, are you going to curse and say the word oh, and I'm not going to use the, the next expletive, are you going to say oh blank in English or are you going to say oh blank in Hindi? He said, well, I'm going to say oh blank in Hindi. I said, exactly. I said, so do you really think it's fair to stand on the side of the road and ask you questions and try and have you understand every intimate detail of what to do? Um, but I want to, I can continue to talk about the DUI cases and what to do on the side of the road, but, but currently... One of the things when people come to our office, and the most important thing that we have to understand is that a criminal case can carry different types of collateral consequences. And realistically, what happens is, is that everybody who fills out a job application or a school application has to answer certain types of questions. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have you ever been arrested? Have you ever done certain things? And... You know, the goal that we have in all these cases is to make sure that you can answer hopefully no on these applications and hopefully have someone, when they run a background search, not have you have to sit in a job interview and explain, well, it was just weed or it was just marijuana. And it was, well, I was really young at that time, and I didn't really think that the cocaine was uh, was a big issue. So one of the things that, that's gone on recently in the last number of years, especially in our state, is that the governor, in really starting about... 2016, really a little bit before, but in 2016, they enacted certain types of legislation because they realized that it's very punitive for somebody to have a criminal conviction stay with them their entire lives. So what's gone on in our state is that hopefully a lot of judges and prosecutors and, and different types of uh, post-conviction remedies are now maybe available that a person can try and have a record restricted or a record expunged. Restricted is the word we use in Georgia for expunged. Even if you had um, a conviction many, many years ago, sometimes it's possible. In the vast majority of cases, it's not, unfortunately. But in certain cases, it is possible to try and have a record restricted. But these things stay with you. And and the issues that, that kind of hit home for me are that so many people come to us, especially, and as a parent myself, when people come to my office and they bring in their child, it could be a college kid, it could be a high school kid, it could be somebody today, someone who was 33 years old, and his parents were standing there sitting in the office with him. And to watch a parent have to go through thinking to themselves, my goodness, my child has ruined their life. Um, the one thing that we can try and do is, is that we don't BS 
in some cases, you know, I, I flat out will tell people this is going to have some consequences. This is a case where there is prison or there is jail time involved. I don't need to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to do that, and neither of my law partners are going to go ahead and do that either. Um, but the goal is is to try and mitigate that. So, for example, on one of the cases of the person who came in today, it was a, a gentleman who had had some issues, and I said, the first thing that we can do is I can't go back and change what you did. I can't change the fact that you got mouthy with the cop, that you had a real bad attitude, that you had a, an accident where you hit a police car um, and took off. I can't change certain facts, but what we can do is we can change what your pattern of behavior is going forward. And the reason that that's important is because every judge in the state who signs their name to a sentence does not want to have their picture on the news if the person that they gave a lenient deal to or a favorable deal to comes back several years later and here they are again. Oh, my goodness. And and all of a sudden, the community will ask, and they'll be all over the television, how could you not be so difficult and so hard on this person who had done these horrible things you knew at the time? And these are the cases that come back to bite people sometimes. But if you're going to wear a robe and you're going to be a judge, you need to have a little bit of fortitude to say, you know what, it's my job to do the right thing and not necessarily worry about you know, what potentially could happen. I'm going to do the right thing and make the right decision at the time um, and give people oftentimes what I hope is the benefit of the doubt that they can make some changes in their life. So in, in our particular practice, the majority of cases that we see, and like I want to start off, are, are good people who made a bad decision. For example, okay, um, oftentimes husbands and wives may argue, and husbands and wives may say things to one another that they regret. Sometimes there can be alcohol involved. Sometimes there isn't. And sometimes, you know, things can get out of hand. And one of the things that, that we try and do, or at least that I try and do, is I say, you know, I get it. You have to make some decisions. Is this the person you want to stay with for the rest of your life? Is If it is, you need to make some changes. Perhaps get some counseling. Perhaps learn some different types of resolution skills. And one of the things that we will do is we will point people in that direction so that when we stand in front of a judge or when we stand in front of a prosecutor and we can tell them, listen, I understand what happened on such and such a date, but since that time, my client has made some affirmative steps to change their pattern of behavior. And I like to use the phrase from Ben Franklin, well done is better than well said. And what that means is that when somebody stands in front of a judge or a prosecutor, and especially it's like, I say that all the time to my daughter. You know, I understand that you're going to be doing well in school, and you tell me that you're going to study. Terrific. That's great. Just do it. And then come back to me afterwards, and we can talk about it. But in, in these types of circumstances, um, I would rather stand in front of somebody. And a good example of this was a number of years ago, I had a client who had several alcohol-related offenses. And what I did was, is before we went to court, I put my client on a certain type of monitor to make sure that they weren't drinking. So I had scientific proof that my client had not had a drink in eight months. And I stood in front of the judge, and the judge looked at me, and he called me up. He said, Mr. Cohn, why did you do that? What, what made you go ahead and do that? I said, well, if I had stood up in front of you and said, for the last eight months, my client has had nothing to drink, you might either look at me and say, uh, you, you, you might nod your head, but you wouldn't necessarily believe it in your heart of hearts. I said, but here's a proof, and here's the fact that they've been tested every day for the last eight months, and there's been nothing in their system. I said, that actually makes a lot more sense and is a lot more concrete evidence and proof that they're less likely to reoffend than somebody who has something and, and, and has 
you know, no conclusive proof. And, and the judge agreed with me and gave my client a much better deal than he or she probably, I shouldn't say deserved, but he or she would have gotten ordinarily had they not made those affirmative steps. And most courts, especially now in Georgia, around the country, they are using something called different types of um, accountability courts, drug courts, alcohol DUI courts, mental health courts, veterans courts. And the impetus is behind, let's see if we can rehabilitate people instead of incarcerating people. There are still plenty of places in Georgia where incarceration is the first response. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'll tell you this. There are certain cases where incarceration, where a person is a threat to the community or a threat to society, where incarceration is warranted. But the great majority of the cases that we see, I think, can be dealt with um, in some sort of way to make a person a gainful or keep them a gainful member of society. Thank you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what some of these alternatives may be. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and I also have our special guest, Larry Cohn from Cohn and Yeager, uh, which is a, a criminal defense firm here in Atlanta. Their contact information is www.georgiacriminaldefense.com. And uh, a contact phone number would be area code 404-567-5515, 404-567-5515. 
And may I say, I love your phone number. Um, I like <laughs> I like all those fives and the five six seven. Very easy to remember. Um, really, there's lots of good information. The, uh, his firm, um, both Mr. Cohn and Mr. Head and Mr. Yeager, are well-known in the community. They are the lawyers' lawyers. They help um, prepare and train many of the attorneys here in the state of Georgia and around the country, and I'm, we're very pleased to have you here. Thanks so much for being here with us today. So right before the break, we were talking about some of the alternatives, and I do have to say that unfortunately I think well fortunately they're doing it I think more attorneys, judges and um, the alternative courts have gotten people into appropriate levels of treatment for their addiction, for their mental health services than many physicians and healthcare providers unfortunately and I'm, I'm really happy to hear and happy to see that here in Georgia we do have a number of um, DUI courts, first offenders courts, mental health courts. That's that's really um, leading in the nation to have these uh, alternatives for people who really could benefit from treatment. Right. Georgia, believe it or not, um, has more people on probation, five times as many people on probation as the state of Texas. And that says something because our population is not as great as the state of Texas. And Governor Deal took it upon himself to deal with a lot of these issues because, number one, from a cost perspective, if you're a conservative politician, it costs a lot to keep people incarcerated. And what I tell people sometimes is that they come into my office and say, listen, if – and I said this to a judge. I had a case with a judge, and I said, you know, I said, I understand that you are considered in this county a very difficult in terms of a hard sentencing judge. I said, but I'm going to tell you something. My client is 39 years old. I said, if we add up every charge that you could give my client the maximum penalty on, my client gets out of jail at 47. Okay? Wow. So my client gets out of jail at 47. And I'm going to tell you something. You don't have enough time to sentence my client for the rest of their life. So the reality is that at some point, this person gets out. Are they going to be better off? Are they going to be back in front of you? And here's the steps or here's the things that I think that we can do to make sure that my client has at least a chance of succeeding uh, when they get released. And one of the things that we do, or at least a lot of lawyers do, and as uh, Dr. Blank mentioned, the accountability courts, um, the accountability courts offer what's called a carrot and a stick approach, okay? The carrot is that oftentimes if you do an accountability court, there will be less jail time, perhaps fines will be lessened, um, but they are incredibly time-consuming, they're incredibly cumbersome, and a lot of cases, it's a one-size-fits-all fit, approach. And I've had clients who, for whatever reason, accountability courts don't work for them. And the reason being is I had an example of a client who was a teacher. In accountability court, this person ha- would have to be at this particular jurisdiction court every Monday or every, excuse me, twice a month for at least six months every Monday at 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. In addition, they would have to take certain drug screens, and the drug lab opens up at 7 well, as a school teacher, it's very difficult to get out of class every Monday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to drive over to the court. And if you have to be in school by 7 a.m., it's impossible to go get a drug screen in that particular locale. You can't go to the drug lab because it doesn't open. So what do you do in these cases? Well, what we do is we try to find an alternative that would be commensurate or as cumbersome or very similar in nature to the, what the DUI court program would entail. 
In many cases, uh, that involves counseling involving someone like Dr. Blank. It involves, it involves other types of uh, recovery counseling, a, a alcoholics or narcotics anonymous meetings, um, different types of classes, community service, different types of things that can mimic accountability. And really what we want is that we want to make sure that while this person is undergoing this particular program for the next two years, that the court can be satisfied that if there is some sort of slip-up, that there is some sort of mix-up or, or problem, they're going to be notified. And that's one of the things that a lot of times that we can do and that our office provides is that we come up with a program that is tailored uniquely to that individual's lifestyle um, in a way that the accountability court is kind of a one-size-fits-all program, that there no necessarily that there may not be an exception, there may not be, well, I understand that you work every Monday and Wednesday and, and, and Friday, and you have the late shift, I'm sorry, you've got to be at counseling at 6 o'clock. Well, then you've got a tough choice. Do I go to work, or do I go to this counseling and end up running the risk that I get in jail? And there are different programs that in many cases we may be able to tailor so that it can meet your schedule or your ability to function because I think that if you take somebody out of their routine of a life in terms of a job or in terms of a family, there's going to be greater greater problems. And for example, that as a man, when you speak to other men, and I, I can't really speak for women or what they do amongst <laughs> when, they, when they chit-chat, but if you get two men together, literally within the first two minutes of having a conversation – you know, at least most guys will ask somebody else, so what do you do for work? What do you do? Because a lot of people define themselves through their job and through their career, and it gives them such pride, and it gives them a great sense of satisfaction on what they do. So as a result, I think that if you take that away from somebody, there's going to be a greater opportunity or a greater chance to reoffend that if you are taken out of the the one thing that you really hold dear. In addition, obviously, family and things of that nature would come first, but I can tell you within people who are what I would say upper middle class people, within the first two minutes of meeting someone, that question invariably comes up. So what do you do? Well, I am a physician. I am a judge. I am a nurse. I am a, you know, I'm a teacher, a professor. It's going to come up, and that sparks further conversation. So if people who define themselves as through their work um, and through their family that they have to provide for their wife, their children um, – or a wife needs to provide for a husband who stays at home with the children. You know, if you take that away from somebody, that's the greatest stress that you can put on a person. And I think it's going to lead to problems down the road. And to me, a lot of facilities in certain parts of the state have work release facilities. Um, but if you can keep somebody in the environment, I, I think, let me back up. If somebody's going down a path in terms of different types of criminal activity, whether it's DUIs or alcohol issues or family violence issues or drug issues or, or different types of crimes, if you keep going down and not making changes in your lifestyle, you're not doing it. You're not doing that person a service. Okay. So what I think you need to do is that you've got to go ahead and make certain types of changes. For example, we get so many calls from parents whose children are charged with a possession of marijuana charge or a THC. By the way, in Georgia, if you have THC oil, which many people use in vape pens, that's a felony. Be aware of that. Having green leafy substance or green leafy bud, that is a misdemeanor less than one ounce. But a little bit of a vape pen, just hitting on the vape pen in your car or a vape pen in your house, you are committing a felony. Having a gummy, guess what that is? It's called a felony. Marijuana wax, a lot of people don't realize that. You know what that's called? It's called a felony. So unfortunately, these cases, a lot of people don't realize that. 
but you are committing a felony. And you know what? If you are a banker, you are a professional, you are in a licensed field, having a felony on your record, not only is it something that you don't want, it can preclude you from performing your job. So one of the things that we would do is that we ask people quite often, and I do this routinely when I talk to people, I say, let me take a look at your human resource policy. Is there a reporting requirement? Do you have to report the arrest? Are you a U.S. citizen? A great example of a case that I handled, which was probably one of the harder cases, is I represented a young man who was 20 years old. He came here with his family, um, and he's a permanent resident. This young man got caught with a Xanax, a gummy worm, that had Xanax in it and a little bit of marijuana. He's been, he went to school here his entire life. He knows nobody back in the country from which he came. His parents are incredibly successful. They basically have lived the American dream, and so has he. Well, if he were to get convicted of this charge, and that includes he was not eligible, even if he pled guilty under the First Offender Act, the issue is, is that you know what? He then became inadmissible to this country, and he would be deported. What do you do in a case like that? These are some of the circumstances and the cases that really present a lot of problems because this kid or this young man was in college. He had lived his whole life here. I just didn't think it would be you know, justice to go ahead and deport him and send him back to the country from where he came. Um, but you read about these types of cases all the time, and what happens is, is that 99% of lawyers, 99% would not have known in that case to go ahead and take a look at the immigration requirements, and they would have said, well, you know what? I could have kept that charge off his record, and they were right. I had another case where a woman was charged with shoplifting, and she had another lawyer in the case. And they called me up because they wanted a second opinion, and I said, you know, if I'm not saying that that route that you're going on won't help you with the criminal justice system in the United States, but I understand this. If you enter and do what he's suggesting that you do, you become inadmissible to this country, and down the road, when you go to renew your green card, your green card will not be renewed, and you will be on the first plane back to Mumbai or, you know, or you know, Argentina, wherever wherever you came from, that's where you will be headed back. So it's important to not just look at the criminal case, but to look at the collateral consequences and ask the right questions. Because as Dr. Blank would tell you, and, and, and David Donaldson would tell you, if you don't ask the right questions, you'll never get the right answers. And those are probably the most important thing that you can do as a lawyer, is ask the right questions so that you can tailor and come up with a result that makes the best sense. Part of what's so difficult um, nowadays in our world is that now that marijuana is becoming legal in so many parts of the country, um, and the the addiction aspects of it are really getting minimized in so many parts of the country, that even when that is a part of their system, their their friends are saying, "Oh, it's no big deal." They're reading on the newspaper, it's going to be legal here eventually. It's medicine. It's medicine. <laughs> um, but the the truth is right now in Georgia, it is still illegal and it's still something that's going to get a probation um, put, in, put in jail. Right. Well, even if, even if it is legal, even if it's illegal in other states, if you get placed on probation and they test you, let's assume that you've been using CBD oil. CBD oil may be a lawful product, but CBD oil contains, contains trace amounts of THC. Correct. That could definitely test positive on a drug screen and cause a problem for you. Um, one of the things that, that I like to tell people is, is, is this, is that, and you can answer this better than I can, at what age are teenagers' brains fully formed? As a woman, 
25 or 26, as a man, 26 or 27. At that point, you have a fully formed prefrontal cortex where you can make good, reasonable adult uh, decisions and not before. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to find out why Mr. Cohn asked that question. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, we're very um, pleased to be able to have um, Mr. Larry Cohn from the law firm of law firm of Cohn and Yeager. If you want more information, please go to their website www.georgiacriminaldefense.com, or you can call them at four zero four. 5615515105465755515 and I really um, can't stress enough how important it is that you have an expert in the field because as we were talking about right before um, in the last segment how how many different elements can um have influence on the decisions that you need to make and the path that you might need to take in terms of resolving whatever problem you'd gotten into. Right before the break, you ask me how old is someone before their brain is fully developed. It's much later than most people think. Yeah, the reason I ask that is the following. Um, Oftentimes, and again, 
myself and my law partners, we're not some, and I guess it, we're not some absolute teetotalers, and, and, and in some cases, um, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that alcohol is going to ruin your life or drugs are going to ruin your life because there are many people who have had success emotionally, spiritually, um, financially, and can, and drink alcohol, use drugs. Um, but what happens is, is that generally there are many people out there, or a number of people, who when they take the alcohol or they take drugs, it's kind of like fireworks go off in their head. And the issue that you have is that most people don't know, which person am I going to be? Am I going to be the one who can successfully tolerate it, or am I going to be the one who the fireworks go off in their head? And oftentimes in stressful situations that they will reach for a drink or reach for uh, a vape pen or reach for some marijuana or take a you know a Xanax or something like that um, to, to kind of control uh, the situation and make themselves feel better for a short period of time. But, but going to something, what I was going to say is, and I always kind of come back to this, is that in the cases that we see, and I, I kind of counsel people a lot, I say, you know, I said, no matter how much you drank or how much you smoked or how messed up you got, when you finally sobered up, you still had the problem that you had to deal with right. <laughs> that got you to that point. Um, and that's that's a very difficult thing for people to, to understand. So one of the issues that I have is that we see a lot of so many high school kids and college kids um, who come to us because potentially, you know, we're, we're very well known within our state for doing this stuff. And parents are very concerned that, you know, my, my high school senior got in trouble for an offense and potentially is going to be facing or applying to college and is now facing a criminal charge. What do we do? And the first thing that we want to go over is, is we want to make sure that, number one, how'd you find yourself into this mess? What what was this? Are you somebody who's a recreational smoker? Are you And, and, and quite often it's generally the parents that go ahead and they're thinking, well, my kid's just being led by, by a, he's being led by the wrong people, hanging out with the wrong crowd. Right. I once was in front of a judge who said, you know, if I could find that wrong crowd, I'd lock <laughs> all of them up and throw away the key. But the, the issue that you have in these cases is that um, very often, you know, your child or your loved one is the one who the fireworks have kind of gone off in their head. Most people, and, and quite often, they could just be in the wrong place at the wrong time just experimenting. Great. But there are a lot of people that, unfortunately, that's not the case. And one of the things that I'll do is I'll pull them aside. I'll talk to them in the room by themselves. And a good story of this is that one person once, a number of years ago, I spoke to for about 45 minutes, and their parents were in the room, and they called me up afterwards and said, I want you to know everything we discussed is total BS. I just didn't want my parents to know the truth. Here's what happened. I said, I get it. Um, I understand that. So that's why one of the things that we do is we'll talk to a person because there's no such thing as parent-child confidentiality, but there is such a thing as called attorney-client confidentiality. And I want that person to feel comfortable to tell me, what did you do? Um, tell me a little bit about what happened so that I have a better idea so that when the case comes to court, and the officer says, you know your client's pants were down and he or she threw up in the back of the police car. I don't want to stand there and say, well, of, of course I knew that when I didn't. <laughs> right. It's not going to be it's, it's not going to be helpful to either of us. So that's why I tell the clients, I say, just look, just tell me everything and I can deal with it. If you tell me something, I then, I'm not going to put you on the stand. If you said, well, I had 15 beers, I'm not going to put you on the stand and say, well, how many beers did you have? Because the response that I'm going to get on the stand, I'm not in a position to try and put someone on the stand to tell a lie. So as a result, the, the response I'm going to get is I'm, I'm not going to handle the case with you testifying. I can handle the case in some other way, but we need to know what happened. 
going back to the issues that we see or that primarily so many cases we see are young people and for whatever reason a lot of people think well marijuana it's, it's just weed it's lawful in other states so one of the things i tell people is i say to this i said i had a young man in my office the other day i said listen if i gave you twenty dollars can you run up to the target and get me a six pack of beer and and he looked at me and i said he says well i can i'm only 19 i said well why can't you do it he says because I'm 19. I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? He says, well, it's against the law. I said, all right. So let's take your situation where you got caught with marijuana. If we went out to Colorado, California, Nevada, I said, do you think that you could smoke out there? He said, no. I said, why not? He says, because the legal age out there is 21 to smoke. I said, so what makes you think that you could do it here? So in, in many cases, what I'm not trying to tell people is that the marijuana, the alcohol, the drugs are going to ruin your life. But the problem is, is that the consequence in the situation that you got yourself into potentially could. Mm-hmm. Okay? And very often we see people who have gotten themselves into bad problems, such as women, girls, young boys, when I say young boys, college age, high school kids, shoplifting. And and what's weird about the practice, and, and again, it's not any sort of sexism or anything like that, men tend to get in trouble in, in certain types of ways. I'm not saying there are exceptions, but guys generally find themselves in types of fighting, sexual situations. They do stupid things that people say, man, that was just really stupid. Women oftentimes will come to us because they have shoplifted. They are depressed. They're going through some sort of situation, and, and, and it manifests itself in such a way that you wouldn't expect. Shoplifting is a prime example of a situation where I will have women who've never been really arrested or in trouble for anything, and here they are at 50 years old finding themselves shoplifting. And they find themselves stealing. It could be a blouse. It could be a lipstick. It could be certain types of things that they're taking. And they perfectly are well-to-do women who have the money and the means to pay for whatever they want. And in that particular circumstance... I think a good lawyer sits down with them and says, well, well, talk to me. What's going on? Well, I'm unhappy about this. And if you can point them in the right direction to try and get some counseling through someone like a Dr. Blank, David Donaldson, different types of areas within the uh, Atlanta community, I think you're doing them a good service because the reality is is when they come to see you, they're scared. They don't want to do it again because they don't want to go back to jail. But I tell them, Within six months, the way that the brain works is you won't remember how bad it felt to be sitting in the jail cell. You're not going to remember. One of the things I tell people, and I ask them, I said, you know, how bad did it feel to pick up the phone and call your dad to tell him where where you were? And the client will look at me and say, it was horrendous. It was awful to have to pick up the phone and call my dad and explain that I was in jail. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember that feeling. Remember how bad that felt. Put that in the back of your head and don't ever forget it. So when the time comes again that you're facing that set, that circumstance, your brain can hopefully reflect back upon that time, and you don't want to put yourself in that situation again. But if you do not get counseling, you do not get help, um, it's definitely going to cause some significant issues. One of the things that we do is this. We're knowledgeable about the law, okay? And there's two types of cases. One case, in every case, you deal with the facts of the case, what happened. And then it's the job to apply the law of this is what the law says. You can't do X, Y, and Z. Or you can do X, Y, and Z, but you have to do it in a certain fashion. Our job is to try and apply the law in such a way. Like, for example, many people don't realize you are allowed to drink alcohol and drive a car. You absolutely can do it. But you can't do it to the point that you're impaired. Okay? So most people or a lot of people, when you pick a jury and you ask them, you realize you can drink alcohol and drive a car. Well, I didn't know that. 
they think that you could have no alcohol and drive a car. You know, I'm not saying it's a great decision to consume any alcohol right. and drive okay. a car, but, but it's not prohibited behavior. So as a result, one of the things that we have to do is that, again, when people come in and call us, it doesn't cost anything to speak to us. I'm certainly happy to talk to you and go through your situation and explain what's going on, what you're facing, what the penalties are, and what we think we can do to get you out of this mess. Because that's really what most people want. How do I get out of this mess? Right. And in some cases, I say, look, I'm not saying that you're going to walk where your record's going to be completely clean, that you're going to have nothing on it, but... You may not necessarily have a record. You may have to look at doing some community service, some counseling, some stuff. The charge may start as a driving under the influence charge. It may get reduced to a reckless driving. Yesterday I had a case that started off as a hit-and-run case. My client hit a vehicle, took off. The case was resolved to a case where it was a failure to report an accident. So just because something starts off looking incredibly dire and incredibly bad, that's not always how it ends. In some cases it does. It is how it ends. Um but typically, uh, the cases where we're actually let me back up in Georgia, we have now passed a constitutional amendment called Massey or Marcy's Law. What that means is that you need to notify victims in certain cases of what happened. And those are the most difficult types of cases as a criminal defense lawyer to stand there and you're looking at somebody and this person is, the, is, is saying, your client ruined my life because they killed my father in a vehicular homicide case where my partner, Corey, and I tried a case, uh, I think it was last year, where we had a client who unfortunately was involved in an accident where three children were killed. Mm. Horrific case. And the first thing I said to the jury in my cases, in the case is, my client was wrong. My client was driving too fast. My client was doing 86 in a 40, or 80 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. But my client was not responsible for the death of the children, and we were found not guilty after trial. So... One of the things that you have to do in a particular case is that you have to evaluate the situation, but you also have to explain to someone in a reasonable fashion um, what they're potentially facing and what they need to do to try and get themselves out of this mess. And talk to an expert. We thank you so much, Mr. Cohn, for being here today. Thank your law partners for for allowing you the afternoon to come spend with us. And uh, thank you, David, for being here. And thank you all for listening. We're going to see you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.